Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Dr. Carol Fleming. Carol is a speech and communications coach in private practice since 1980 and is the founder of The Sound of Your Voice, a San Francisco consultancy firm that specializes in vocal development and communication training. She's also the author of the audio series, The Sound of Your Voice, uh, The Serious Business of Small Talk, and the book, It's the Way You Say It, Becoming Articulate, Well-Spoken, and Clear. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Well, I'm happy to be here, Chris. So can you tell me a little bit about your background, what you do, uh, how you got into communication coaching? Uh, Sure. I started off as a speech-language pathologist out of Northwestern University. And my first work was with uh, people with pathologies of communication. And an interesting thing happened. Uh, My private practice office was in a a medical establishment, and I found I was getting as many requests for my time from the hospital staff and physicians as I was from people who had organic problems with communication. I had not expected that. And when I realized how profoundly people were affected by their uh, discomfort with communication, by their non-fluencies, by their poor speech, and the huge effect it had on their careers, I'm talking about doctors now, nurses, um, I thought, my goodness, they have no place else to go. So I started um, accepting more, the word got out, and I just transitioned over into that uh, area. And what walked in the door is what taught me what was out there in terms of the needs that uh, regular folk have in various communication issues. So it was an education for me on um, the great need for for someone like myself to, to help them. That's absolutely wonderful. What are some of the common vocal problems that you come across in your practice? You know, that is such an interesting question because I, I would like to make a um, an observation. People's relationship with their own voice is a very mystical thing. It's it's not like anything else in our behavioral. Uh, repertoire. Your voice comes from inside of you. It is a result of your physical structure, your psychological state, your sociological background, and we are not good judges of the sound of our voice. Matter of fact, we are the worst because it is so emotional and so much a part of our personality that most people just make stabs at trying to figure out what is it that I am dissatisfied with? And, and frankly, they, they can't. I'll have someone who will come into my office, and this will sound funny, but you'll get the idea. Dr. Fleming, I think my voice is too high. <laughs> you see, they're judging it on some kind of internal gauge, not apparent to me, um, and they don't have an objective viewpoint. There's not a good mirror for them to look into and say, you know, here's what I don't like about my appearance. The mirror would be some kind of very complex um, video uh, recording, a 
which would include a video um, where they could sit back and say, "This is what I'm. This is what, how I look when I talk. This is how I sound when I talk." So they need to do to get a better idea of the impression they make by the way they speak. There's two avenues for folks. Uh, the first one sounds so easy. Well, you should record yourself with other people talking with other people of your of your same sex to make a real judgment about is my voice really too high or low? Do I speak too fast? Do I have a funny sounding laugh? Um, do I swear too much? Do I interrupt? I mean, any of these things that we might get with objective listening. Uh, frankly, Chris, people will not do that. <laughs> will they? Not very often. No, not very often. They cannot stand listening to themselves. So that's your tip off that something profoundly different is happening in our relationship with the sound of our voice. And the second thing, of course, is a consultation with a trained voice professional who's going to give you objective feedback and not worry about um, their opinion of you as a person, you know, so it's not, not personal, um, or your feelings, but be able to tell you um, how it sounds to them. So those are the two things that are open uh, to you to get a more objective reading of the impression you make by the way you speak. It's funny because I'm thinking about somebody I, I recently interviewed for a podcast. And on a podcast, all you really have is a person's voice. When they go back, they hear themselves. They hear me interviewing them. And somebody I had interviewed didn't like the way they sounded on the podcast. And so they wanted me to re-record them. And then when I re-recorded them, they said they didn't like when there was a man. He didn't like when his voice was higher pitched. So he tried to talk very low on the entire podcast and it just sound it sounded so weird. And yeah. and I and I told him I'm like nobody naturally talks like that. You sound creepy. Oh, so I, I I need you to kind of let go and it's funny cuz you had mentioned like the crazy laugh. My laugh is insane. Like it's high pitched out of control, but I don't let it bother me. Like probably once a week someone says your laugh is insane. And I I probably get 10 times more compliments about the way that I laugh because I'm unrestrained as I do people who become self-conscious and say, you have a funny laugh and I've just learned not to care. But there is an element where I think people try to hold back and it makes their voice come across as strange or off or unnatural. Yes, yes. Do you yes, know what yes. I'm referring to? Well, you know, it, it's, I think it's even more than that, Chris. People say, well, the sound of your voice is part of your personality. No, it is your personality. It is the totality of your impression on the world. What could be more intimate? It is a, a sound produced within the very inside of your body that reflects your structure, your temperament. It is incredibly uh, personal. I don't know anything more personal than the sound of your voice. And, and you try to monkey with it consciously, of course. You are absolutely right. It's going to sound stupid. Unless, of course, you are... Uh, a trained actor who knows how to uh, make adjustments in the way that you talk in such a way that it is credible and does not sound funny. That's actually a great transition. What are some of the ways that people can improve the sound of their voice so it doesn't sound goofy and does sound natural? Because you're right, actors do it so well. Well, you know, I'm going to have to say uh, working with a professional is the safest way to go 
because then you have some immediate feedback on the effectiveness of what you are doing and to prevent you from doing the <laughs> unfortunate things that do sound uh, stupid. So you not only need a, a an ear that tells you whether something is within the bounds of what's, what's right for you, but also standing back and say, and that voice creates this kind of impression. And also, you can decide for yourself uh, that you need a particular kind of voice that is not good for the health of your vocal mechanism. For example, you probably heard in that fellow uh, who spoke strangely to you that he probably was straining his vocal mechanism to produce that sound. Well, you keep trying to talk that way, and you are, in fact, going to hurt your voice. You want your voice to be uh, comfortable and flexible and responsive emotionally. So straining it to be... I, I suspect that he tried to make it very low. Is that correct? Yeah, he tried to make it lower because it felt like it made him sound more masculine. The problem was he no longer had a normal range of musicality and it sounded weird and you absolutely right probably did that actually kind of leads me into two of the most common problems i find with people that i end up coaching in kind of my dating coaching practice and one of them is being monotone so my first question is how does somebody develop more musicality or what recommendations do you have for helping someone develop more musicality in their voice oh boy um this, let me see, how can I can do this concisely? I would be asking, first of all, um, are you pushing your voice down to the very bottom of your range so that you can't go any lower than where you are now? In, in case, if I can do an imitation, um, you may say something and you may tell somebody to do something. And if you notice, my voice is not going down at the end. See, they're already at the bottom, so they can't go down further to show uh, that it's a declarative sentence. So that means in this case, I have to raise the pitch of the person in order for them to have room at the, at the bottom of their range to go down to indicate uh, finality or certainty. So they can say, uh, I'm going to the store today, store today. You hear that shift downward? That tells you that person intends to do that. So that's one one way you can get into having a an apparently monotone voice. Now, we get into a real murky area here now, Chris, with melody and a person being constricted and afraid to show vocal variety because internally, Vocal variety or musicality is associated with emotionality. And especially a lot of fellas don't want to show that because they have, they're afraid it, it's a giveaway uh, of vulnerability. And so they have the uh, constrained pitch usually down at the bottom. And if they vary, they may vary by three notes. And it might sound something like this. You know, I want to go, but I don't know when I'll be able to because I'm just going to allow my voice to fluctuate just a little to indicate a pitch change. 
So that's minimal. And what we found is men usually about three tiny little pitch changes to stand for vocal variety. Now, uh, a woman usually uses, I'm making big fat generalities here, you'll understand, four pitch levels and has them more widely spaced. So if you listen to the sound of my voice now, you can hear that it could be a song because it's going up and then it goes down and it's constantly fluctuating to show my relationship with what I am saying. So it's much more communicative and much easier for a person to know how I feel and, and what I mean. So there's a psychological leap from the person who is constrained and flat to a person who is fluent and melodic. And making that transition or teaching someone to do that and showing them how to do that, you've got more work on your hands than just having them follow pitch contours. You need to have the psychological readiness to be willing to do that. Now, the first reaction when you get someone to do it, like I'm, I'm having them in, uh, imitate me while I do some steps and, and watch to see if they can do it. At first, they, they reject it. Uh, oh, don't I sound like a clown? Isn't that silly? I feel like I sound like a girl. Um, I mean, they came for that, but when you get it from them, they don't like it because it pulls them out of their defensive hiding place in the flat tone. So you see, it's a very much more complicated uh, topic, isn't it? Well, that was exactly what I was expecting you, the direction I was expecting you to go. Because even when I'm, I'm not a voice coach, but when I get somebody who's monotone, the first thing I'll do is exactly what you said. I'll make them repeat something that I'll say because I want to hear whether or not they can hear the tones. Once I hear that they can hear the tones, I know that they're capable of doing it. Then we try to work through it. But um, this is actually exactly what I was expecting. I'm really fascinated with how you get somebody to release or how do you get someone to let go so that they can have that vocal variety? Well, I've got to, first of all, get them to do it. That's, that's the first step. And actually, it's uh, <laughs> not the most important one. Then I, I record them doing that and let some time pass. And then I play that recording. And it's interesting. As they listen to the behavior, they watch my face intently because they are not capable of judging it. They are uh, alarmed by it. Any change will alarm somebody, Chris. Any change just really throws somebody off. Habit is so strong with us. So they will watch my face to see if I turn up my nose or uh, indicate that something is not, uh, is not right because they, they can't judge it themselves. So they need a lot of hand-holding and experience for them to get to any point where they say, yeah, well, I guess that does sound um, okay. And the work you have to do just to get them to say, I guess that's okay, you know, that's just the beginning because now you've got to get them to uh, practice to learn it so it can become more available to them when they really talk. So it's, it's a process. It is not easy. It made me think of a conversation I recently had with a, a body language expert named Alan Pease, and he wrote a book called Body Language. Yes, uh-huh. And I was talking to him like in a private conversation about 
he had worked with Putin for a while. Oh, yes. And he was saying when he had worked with Putin, this is before Putin was president of, of uh, Russia, but he was talking about how Putin's face has very little expression. Yes. And, and, yeah, yeah. And that there is a, a reason for that. That's the consequence of in Russian culture, oftentimes when people were fairly young, they would throw them in the military and they wanted these young recruits to be serious. And it, that seriousness became a part of the culture and part of the communication. And so essentially an anxiety developed, right? That restricted these people from showing what would be the natural expression in their face. And I feel like there's very clear parallels here between that type of behavior and the psychological restrictions or anxieties that are associated with what you're describing and the results of being monotone. Okay. Uh, Chris, you're absolutely right. Uh, but it goes way beyond Putin. It goes far beyond him. Uh, there was the expression, I believe, from the British Army, keep a stiff upper lip, meaning you don't show emotion. Yeah, that was exactly what he was describing, yeah. Yes, and exactly what, remember, at the very beginning when we started talking, to show emotion is to show vulnerability. And you want to put forth the mask of, of the tough guy. And don't we talk about the inscrutable oriental who withholds the emotional display, and that gives them power. And the person who breaks, um, gosh, well, you know how to get to them, don't you? And you know that you have gotten to them. So now you are flooded with power and assurance while they're doing a meltdown. So there is the problem of a lot of masculine restriction because they're frequently brought up by tough dads you know, who says, now, boys don't cry, you know, tuck it in, keep a straight face, you know, all this tough guy stuff that, um, you know, they get stuck with because as a young man, and Chris, I, I'm sure you'll validate this, when you go through adolescence and you're in your peer group, you are trying desperately to to be the man. Yeah. And, and you will adopt the more uh, obvious, and available behaviors that you see around you. So you tuck, as your voice goes through the, the change, you'll tuck that pitch down, you'll hold it down, and, and just try to be the tough guy as best you can. You're working out the pecking order in school, and you don't want to be on the bottom. I was going to say, even when you're a man, you're still trying to be the man. <laughs> yes. When does it stop? When am I okay? <laughs> but it, you're right. It does have this kind of like psychological effect on us. I mean, and women have lots of other parallels. But for men, I see exactly what you're describing. Like, uh, Because, yeah, you're trying to come off as more masculine, more assertive, more trying to move up the pecking order, as you describe. And... You're just trying to do it based on the things that you observe or hear and and things that we see. But oftentimes, these are warped through our own experience or interpretations. Of course. Yes, you are absolutely right. I want to talk a little bit about kind of vocal projection, right? So what are some of the causes of poor vocal projection? How can listeners project their voices better, especially in louder environments? Well, here is an area where I do an awful lot of work, Chris. It's very much related to the topic we were just talking about. Um, pulling the voice down in the back of the throat to give it that, that uh, deeper sound. 
puts the focus of activity farther in the back of your mouth. Now, when it comes to projecting the voice out, you are in a very poor position to send any signal out when you're tucking all this tension in the back of your throat. The, what the trained actor learns is to have as much of the energy of their speaking up in the front of their face so that it is not only more audible but more visible so that people can figure out what speech sounds, what words you're actually making. And those poor guys who are trying to be the big tough guy and pulling their voice way down in in the back of their throat are the ones who are going to have the most trouble here because uh, you have to be taught of how to take the energy from the back of your throat and put it up right up in the front of your face where it will make you feel the most vulnerable and uncomfortable when psychologically you want to tuck it back away. So there's your problem. I remember when I was, I took an acting class years ago and I was supposed to get really angry in a scene and I could only get to like a a certain volume and it was because I was holding back. There was like this certain way that I felt it was appropriate to behave and and it took me a while to work past that. Eventually I did and it had an impact on many aspects of my life. One term I've actually heard moving back to this idea of vocal projection that I liked is putting the voice on someone's breath. Well, that we have to teach in metaphors frequently because all of the myriad and subtle musculature behind speech production is not available to us on the conscious level to teach somebody. So we have to give them an image and hope that image inspires in them the kind of behavior that we are after. So you will hear the teacher say things like, well, put it out on your breath. Um, If that works to get you to have more tonal support and therefore a richer voice, then that is a good instruction to give that particular person. Like I might say, think about singing. And you see that too would release the tonal support underlying articulation to have a more steady stream of support that carries the voice out. So we'll, we'll look to find the language that speaks to you to get what we want you to do. It may end up sounding kind of funny, but if it works, that's, that's all we care. And, and, but in both cases, essentially what you're trying to do is, as you said before, get the production of the sound towards the front of the mouth. Yes, yes, yes. The more you can do that, the more you energize the front sounds. Let me tell you what the front, for example, front sounds. T, D, L, M, N, S, Z. They are all made with the the, um, tip of the tongue and the lips right up here on the very edge of your face. That's where you want to put the energy. Now, the the trouble sounds are going to be something like R and, and K and G. Like if I said, uh, oh, uh, dark, feel the end of that word, arc, arc. You see how that's in the back? But if you say something like, eat a bite of pie, eat a bite of pie, that's right up in the front. 
okay? So I would use word examples to jimmy a person into feeling the difference between sounds that are made in the posterior of the mouth and those that are made in the anterior. Because most people aren't thinking about that. You know, they, they, they don't spend their time thinking where does the speech sound come from. They just talk. But I have to, to get a time to focus them so they can learn that you can shift your energy to the more frontal sounds and get a brighter and more crisp speech articulation that will be heard at that cocktail party. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. It makes me want to ask a question about clarity. I remember in the King's speech in that mm-hmm. movie, they stuck a bunch of marbles or something in his mouth. I don't know if that is a practical exercise or not, or if that's something that's just Hollywood. Can you talk a little about that? Yes, I want to. Uh, this is uh, this is actually mythic in its origin, uh, the story of Demosthenes. Uh, a Greek orator who, I believe I'm right, um, who was a great speaker. And he, in some writing, and I don't even know, um, that he would be supposed to practice by putting marbles in his mouth and I believe speak in front of the ocean uh, to make himself heard. Now, do not put marbles in your mouth. Let me go on record... (laughs) Very clearly, that is not a good idea. What happens if one of those marbles goes down your throat? You know, this is madness. Don't even think about it. So that is just legend. Don't put anything in your mouth. Um, I mean, you're going to go out through life with something in your mouth while you talk? I don't think so. It would just make you mumble. So that is a a complete uh, story that's amusing, but, oh, God, don't take it literally. (laughs) <laughs> okay. It seemed to me like Hollywoodification when I was watching it, but I could see people going home and buying marbles or buying marbles on their way home from the movie theater and practicing in the mirror. And I was I wanted to straighten that out or have you straighten out. Yeah. Well, it wasn't, wasn't Hollywood. They were just repeating an ancient uh, myth of you know, or, or bit of Greek lore that is many, many hundreds of years old. But they kind of believed that kind of stuff at the time that the picture was portraying. 
Now, of course, nobody would believe that. But, but they, that was the beginning of speech correction that we were learning about in that movie. What are some more tips, suggestions for people who want to learn to communicate more confidently and assertively? That is such a big topic, Chris. Um, let, let me just pick one little aspect of it that might be of the most helpful to, to your listeners. We've gotten into the habit, uh, many of us, of having what we call the upending sentence. And I will, I'll do a demonstration of that. Uh, I'm going downtown. I'll probably see Mary this afternoon. I think she's going to be working till about 5 o'clock. And I don't know what time she'll be home, but I'm going to be uh, trying to see her before she leaves. You have to hear how the voice went up? At the end of that, okay, that's called uptalk. Some people find it extremely irritating because they want the person to make a simple declarative statement. I'm going downtown. I'm going to see Marie. I don't know when she's leaving work. So you have a sense of a complete and strong statement. And the other one sort of gives the impression of being a question. Well, in a sense, it's not quite it's not quite a question, but it is asking for affirmation. You want that other person to be making eye contact and maybe nodding their head a little to indicate, yeah, yeah, okay, I hear you, I, I understand, uh, I'm with you now. And that seems to its detractors to be a weak way of talking where you're constantly asking other people to affirm what you're saying instead of just coming out and saying it and sounding as if you mean it. Now, that is one way that a person can really change their confidence rating is if they, they have to find out if they do this first, don't they? So they either need to listen to themselves on recording or have a professional person give them a feedback. Now, see, it's not, it's not as simple as it may sound. For example, listen to, to this sentence. I'm uh, going to the mall today. I'm going to buy some new shoes. I'm going to return the blouse. I'm going to get the dry cleaning, and then I'll go pick up the kids. Well, you heard me go up on that series of things that I was going to do and the fact that I went up told you, I'm doing a series and I'm not done yet. I'm giving you a list of things I'm going to do. In this case, the upending is quite appropriate because it communicates a level of meaning to you beyond the word content. So not all upendings are the same. except when they are used too much, when a declarative sentence form would have been uh, a better choice. So a person really throws away their sound of certainty when they use too many of these upending sentences. Yeah, this makes sense. I, and I've heard this. People will use this when they're uncertain about what they're saying, so they'll, they'll use the ending for affirmation. And actually, I hear this with guys that I'm coaching when they're around women that they're attracted to, but they feel nervous. Sure. 
And it's also, you, you'll do that in front of the judge yourself. If you have someone who's making you nervous and you're, you're going to ask, you don't want to sound so strong that they will take you down a notch, so you will take yourself down a notch by sounding uh, a little bit weaker. Anytime we feel judged, right? So it could be a literal judge or your boss or someone you're attracted to or a parent. You see, com- communication is a lot more complicated than we, we normally talk about. But that's the fun of my work, is I get to play in that field of complexity and try to figure out what is going on here. Because until you figure it out, of course, you can't help anybody. You can't do anything. This makes absolute sense. How much does breathing affect tone? Well, you, you don't have tone unless you have a breath supply. The breath supply crosses the vocal folds in your throat and causes them to vibrate. If you have you ever seen uh, Venetian blinds go into vibration when the wind came through them, that, that's what's happening with your vocal folds. So no, no flow of air, no vibration. So it has everything to do. There's, the sound has two parts. You have these two vocal folds lying next to each other, and you have the flow of air. There's your voice. So if somebody is listening to this, like say a man is listening to this, podcast and he wants to speak in a naturally confident masculine type of way where should his voice come from in his body well we're not getting that question quite right chris it's going to come from the same structures that it comes from from everybody the airflow uh up the uh, trachea which is right behind your breastbone and up into your, your larynx, which is in your throat, it, it causes the vibration is there. So definitely the nexus of sound is going to be right there in your throat. However, that's just the beginning of sound production. Those vibrations in your throat are resonated differently in the pharyngeal and the oral cavities, the throat and mouth, by the movements of the jaw, the lips, and the tongue, and these movements are the shapers of the resonance cavities, so you have different sounds. So that's the, that's the mechanism, that's the tool that we all have to, to speak. So there's going to be no difference uh, there. The diaphragm is a great big muscle that separates the upper thorax or chest from the abdomen. And you need to picture a salad bowl, big salad bowl, turn it upside down, shove it up inside your ribs, and that's your diaphragm, okay, that big muscle. And when it contracts, it pushes down on the abdominal space in order to create a vacuum in the upper chest so that air is sucked in for you. That's breathing. That's how we get air in. The diaphragm descends, compresses the abdominal materials, sucks air in, and now we've just inflated our lungs. And then we relax that contraction, and the ribcage, the, the diaphragm goes back up to its position of rest, and the ribcage, which also was expanded during this effort, it relaxes, and so the air is pushed out of the body. 
Now, I work with diaphragmatic uh, breathing uh, quite a bit, actually, um, and I know to work on it when I instruct my client, take a nice deep breath of air, and I watch what they do, Chris. And I will normally see a great big heaving of the shoulders, and I will hear sound effects <gasps> like that. And it's all that is is acting out, I am breathing. It's sound effects and visual effects that they have been taught by flute teachers and yoga instructors and you know, all kinds of instrument teachers to demonstrate this is a breath. Well, it is not a breath. It is a very constricted um, portrayal of breathing. Good breathing it should be invisible and silent because you allow the diaphragm to contract. Heck, that's at your belt level. You know, that's under the table. You don't need your shoulders to take a nice deep breath of air. You just allow the abdomen to expand and relax the shoulders. We want to keep the tension out of the shoulder girdle. We don't want tension there. That has, that's going to have ramifications for the quality of your voice. So you want to allow the diaphragm to do its work, distend the belly, increase um, the capacity of the lungs to take air in. So diaphragmatic breathing simply means get out of your shoulder girdle, let go of that tension, and allow the midsection of your body to do the work of taking air in. I think that's great. I mean, that, that's kind of what exactly what I wanted you to talk about. And that I've only seen this, like I've seen the problems that you're describing where a guy will pick up his shoulders uh, as he breathes. And because I, I used to do that and somebody did something that I really liked. It was a, a voice coach. It was helpful visually. They put their hands on my sides, like um, somewhere around my rib cage area. And they told they made me breathe in and out until their fingers would open and close like the gills of a fish. Yeah, that's see, that's a good visual aid to help you focus on on what it is that that needed to be done. So that's fine. One other thing that shocked me about that kind of experience of working with somebody who does voice, we we did this exercise where we had to make a sound and and try to produce that sound higher and lower in our body and somebody held their hands across from us and tried to feel the vibration and you could literally feel the vibration going lower into their uh, body when their, the sound got deeper and higher up into the throat when it got higher and I found that, that absolutely fascinating. Well you can uh, shift the, uh, the feeling of vibration. Uh, and I frequently have people, you know, try to do that. For example, with the transgender folks that I am working with, the male to female, they walk in uh, and their resonance is down in their chest. And they're like, I need to have a voice that sounds more like a woman. Well, you know, it's not going to happen with that deep chest voice. So I try to teach them how to get up in the front, like I like think about up in the forehead or behind the eyes of getting the voice up here so you, it, it's a lighter voice and it has more of a head resonance and I'm wondering now if you can hear the difference in my voice. Can you hear that, Chris? Does yeah, it sound absolutely. From you? Yes, yeah. So that's where I go with them. Many of these folks think they want a higher voice. Now, 
I want to sound like a woman. I want my have my voice high. No, you don't, because you'll just sound funny. And you don't want to go out sounding funny. You want to sound natural, but you want to sound more feminine. So let's reduce the emphasis on the chest, which is all you have been taught all your whole life. Okay? And and get them to experience this more front and frontal uh, resonance pattern so they can do it on purpose. So that's the work I do with them. That makes sense. Because I was wondering about that. I know we talked a little bit about your work with people who are transgender before this interview. And, and actually, I have friends who are transgender, and I've asked them, like, how is your voice naturally sound? And like, try to understand. And as we were talking about this podcast, and we were talking about the men who try to keep their voice abnormally low, I started thinking about people who do the opposite and try to keep it abnormally high. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's <laughs> the voice is a tricky thing, Chris. Um, getting some help is not available to everybody, but it sure is wonderful if it were because you need that objective person to guide you because on your own, it's very hard to do for the very reasons I've been talking about. It is so intimate. It is so personal. It's so inside your body. And we are so ill-equipped to know how to modify it. So it's it's not a do-it-yourself kind of activity. I have a question about stage fright, right? Let's say somebody is getting stage fright because they're around their boss when they're attracted to. They're in a on a board and they don't want to speak up, they get nervous. Or even probably the most classic example I think about is being in college where they go around the room and they ask everyone to introduce themselves. What suggestions do you have for people who are trying to reduce or eliminate stage fright when they're speaking in public? Well, there are two things that I would emphasize for your listeners. The first one is we vastly underprepare for most presentations. And we misunderstand what preparation means. Uh, most folks will go like to their the paper they're going to read or the, the, uh, the actual words they're going to say. That is just a small part of what preparation should be. Preparations, I want to know who are you talking to? What's their attitude? What's their experience? What do they already know? What do they need to know? How can you help them? So spend at least as much time on analyzing your audience as looking at your material. Another thing I ask them to do is, where are you going to be talking? Go there first. Familiarize yourself with the space. So as you mentally rehearse, you picture yourself in that particular spot so that you leave as little to chance as possible. It will feel like old home week if you return to a place that you have previously visited. So go visit. So this upfront preparation where you try to familiarize every aspect of your talk before you go there will make you so much more comfortable. Does that make sense to you? That makes absolute sense. You're, you're essentially saying take these, some of these things that you have control over out of the equation. Yeah. Yeah. Get your ducks in a row. You can do that. And I think a lot of folks, it just never occurred to them that that was okay to do. They think they need to just like write a speech 
And then they go up and read it. Oh, God, that's the most boring thing in the world you can do. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I, well, the first time I ever had to give a speech, I, I was probably in a serious way. Like I had been in a speech class, but I had to speak. I was working for a California state senator, and he was running for lieutenant governor, which is like vice president of California. And uh, I had to speak, and I was speaking with a bunch of congressional members and state senators and just different elected officials. And uh, I'd never spoke, and I, I got up there and read like a three-page speech directly oh, off the God. paper. <laughs> oh God! Oh dear! I was about—I think I was twenty-one, maybe. Yeah. Well, you know better now. I hope. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So, so understanding—I mean, get a good book. Get my book, for heaven's sakes. Uh, get something that gives you some instructions, and don't think you really know how to give a speech until you educated yourself on what there is to know about it. So you can you know, avoid that painful experience that you had with the three-page red speech. I mean, oh, yuck, <laughs> you just don't want to ever do that. Now, the other thing that I, I want to mention, Chris, uh, it is this. People get all self-centered and egocentric. What do they think of me? They're judging me. I am on stage here. Well, me, me, me. Of course you're going to get nervous if you think the whole thing is about you. It is not about you. You don't even matter. What matters is your audience. What do they need to hear? What do they know? What are they there to learn? Focus on how can I be of service to this group of people and get out of what I think they are going to hear and even go out and find out, you tell me, what do you need to know about? What do you want? Why are you here? What would change things for you? And be guided by your listeners. It makes me think about the voice as really a tool to communicate whatever is in your head to another person or, or your crowd. And really, it's just, I mean, it's a tool for connecting. There you said it. You couldn't have, I could not say it better than that. It is the tool of connection, whereby we take what is in top in our head and put it into your head. And we, we would like, I have clients who admit they would rather mind meld like a Vulcan <laughs> than, than talk. But talking is our way of mind melding. So why not try to get good at it? I absolutely agree with you. Um, any other kind of last suggestions, tips, words of wisdom on, on how people can have a stronger, better quality voice so they can communicate more effectively? Well, let me say this. The voice is part of a great expressive capacity that we have as human beings. When I work, especially to open somebody up to being expressive, uh -huh, I said, I want you to see if you can take some dancing lessons. Get in an improv class. Join a drama group. How about debate? Take any opportunity that comes your way to be part of the action. Like if you're in a club, read the minutes. Lead the meeting. Give a report. In other words, seek out all kinds of ways to, first of all, reduce your fear of speaking. 
and increase your confidence of performance because you will not do that unless you're out there actually uh, confronting it and, and, um, and trying things out. Reading about it will not help. No, nothing passive. The, oh, Dr. Fleming, uh, is there something I can read or something I can listen to? Those are passive. You must get active. You must do something if you want to change your behavior. It's funny, the examples you've used, I've done every single one of them. Uh, good for you. <laughs> every single one of them, from leading a meeting to doing yeah. debate to doing improv to doing. And I would, and would you agree with what I had to say? 100%. Absolutely agree. I mean, the stuff that you're saying on this podcast has been absolutely incredible. And I know that the team here is a huge fan of your book. It's an absolute must read for anyone who's out there listening to this and they want to learn how to have a more articulate, well-spoken, clear voice. I said during the course of this podcast, it really is the way that you connect to other people. It's so, so, so important. Thank you so much again for coming on the show. You've been incredible. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for the privilege of, of talking to your listeners. I hope it has been helpful to them. And it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.